0: Hello, just a quick word before we get on with the latest edition of A Chicken in Every Pot. Um, This month's edition is a little different from normal in as much as we don't uh, focus exclusively on US politics and US role in the world. Um, We're looking at the Good Friday Agreement 25 years on. We do talk a lot about the US role in that agreement, but we do talk about subsequent developments as well as as that. Anyway, uh, on with the podcast.
1: Greetings everybody. Uh, Welcome to our podcast, A Chicken in Every Pot. Uh, We are delighted today to have two uh, exciting guests to discuss everything with. Before we start, I'll introduce myself. I'm Clodagh Harrington. Uh, I teach politics at uh, University College Cork. Uh, Prior to that, I was uh, at De Montfort University in the UK for a very long time, uh, teaching American politics. And uh, I will pass over to my co-host.
0: Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Icewarden, uh, Associate Professor in Politics at the University of Leicester. Um, I'm sure the university would want me to say that opinions are my own rather than reflecting any institutional bias. Okay. Claudia, do you want to introduce uh, our great guest today?
1: I'd be delighted. Okay. So, first of all, we have John DeBrell, who is Emeritus Professor of Government at Durham University. So, welcome, John. Uh, John specializes in the study of U.S. foreign policy. His... Uh, catalog is, is pretty extensive, uh, author of many, many uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy books. And I suppose what might be particularly relevant today is his vast knowledge of um, Bill Clinton's foreign policy. So we'll be kind of reflecting and thinking um, about those issues um, as we go through the, the conversation today. Um, alongside John, we have Dr. Amanda Hall, who joins us from the University of Reading, uh, where she is a lecturer in international relations. Uh, we are very much looking forward to the publication of her monograph, which is entitled, Beyond the Agreement, the Strained Peace of Inter-Referendum Northern Ireland. That's 1998 to 2016. So you can uh, deduce from the title how, how relevant and interesting her uh, participation is going to be. So welcome to both our guests and uh, we'll make a start. So I guess if we could maybe just start with kind of some... Thoughts, reflections, maybe just a couple of sentences from 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 each of our guests. Amanda, I might ask you first, just kind of your own your own thoughts and and, and responses to the, the 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 way in which the Good Friday Agreement has kind of been a, a, acknowledged um, at twenty five. You know, what 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 are your thoughts? Just a, a brief sentence or two.
2: It's been great to see how how much celebration we've seen about the Good Friday Agreement at 25 to mark this milestone birthday in the last few weeks. Um, that said, um, in celebrating this birthday, we've obviously seen quite a lot of cracks of the agreement laid fairly bare. Stormont, for example, um, isn't sitting at the moment. And so I think we have to consider that um, in considering the legacy of the peace process. So as it turns 25, we do have to acknowledge that everything still isn't perfect, and there's a lot still to be done.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. John? Um, in thinking about the various celebrations associated with the 25th anniversary, particularly some of the events at Queen's University, um, the, the major personnel who were covered in the British press anyway were George Mitchell, Tony Blair, Bertie Ahern, and Bill Clinton. Um, one thing that struck me initially was, of course, the people who died and, and obviously couldn't be there who had a major role in the events. Uh, John Hume, Albert Reynolds, David Trimble and I suppose Ted Kennedy as well. Um, two other things occurred to me. One is that uh, John Major appeared to have to rather low profile. I think he was there and attended a dinner. But John Major, of course, um, you know, was a major figure, really, in the early stages of the dynamic, which eventually led to the Good Friday Agreement. Um, he, he, major, of course, actually opposed American involvement. It was Blair who really welcomed Clinton's involvement, but Major's rather low profile, I thought was quite interesting. And the, the last point, really, is that um, in the way that it was covered anyway in, in the British press, enormous uh, emphasis seemed to attach itself to the American connection, particularly the Clintons and so on, and George Mitchell as well. And in terms of the literature on the Good Friday Agreement and the whole peace process, in recent years, I'm thinking of people like Amon O'Kane and Paul Dixon, There's been a tendency to perhaps push the American connection aside a bit and to say, well, the dynamics really uh, evolved from Sunningdale in 1973 and through the various dialogues. And, of course, there's been huge publicity given to the contacts between London, Dublin and the the provisional IRA. So to some extent, I suppose you might argue that um, the way that it's been celebrated possibly has tended to exaggerate the importance of the American connection. John, can I just pick you up,
0: actually, Amanda, obviously, if you've got any thoughts on this, do you think that that's the case? I mean, I, 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 I'm backtracking a little bit here. I remember when we, we were at a conference, actually, in the US, and the panel, I think you know, I wasn't giving a paper, you were giving a paper on <coughs> the, the role in, in um, and certainly that there's, there, there's an assumption that the Americans did play a major role. Do you think that, that, I mean, would your interpretation be that it has been exaggerated in the public mind?
3: To some extent, because, the, I mean, Clinton's role was so public and, and it was so extraordinary really to have a, an American president devote so much energy and time and uh, political capital, I suppose, to, you know, part of the world which didn't really have much obvious connection to, to immediate American security or economic interests. And I think unquestionably in terms of selling the agreement and in terms of its public profile, and indeed, I think the... Um, impact, really, on the, some of the leading actors as well. Clinton's involvement was very, very important. But, uh, it, it, you know, the, the, but, but the American involvement came a bit later in the day. The dynamics were already going, and, and the more that's been revealed, I suppose, about the um, internal debates within uh, Irish republicanism and the dialogues between Dublin, London, and various um, loyalist and republican forces in the north, perhaps it tends to put a different uh, aspect on it, and and to see the American involvement as more a kind of public relations selling the process. But I'm not saying that the American connection was not important. I think it was very important.
0: Amanda, have you got any thoughts? I mean, I guess in the sense of the regulars, as the regular system, though Claudia and I are very much Americanist, so tend to put America at the centre of everything when, when it yeah. should actually not be there. Have you got any more? Uh, are you, what, what what would you say about American involvement in the early stages and? and
2: I'd agree with John that, you know, the American involvement did come fairly late in the day if we look at sort of the long history of attempts at a peace process in Northern Ireland. But I think that was really, really important. Um, And Senator Mitchell actually emphasized the fact that, you know, he in, in his speech in Queens at the 25th anniversary, you know, he emphasized the fact that he wasn't the one that was delivering a peace process. He was there to listen, and he talks a lot in this speech. And I'd recommend listeners of the podcast go listen to it if they have time, if they haven't yet. Um, he talks a lot about the fact that he was there to listen, and he listened a lot. Um, but at the end of the day, he wanted to make sure that it was their peace process. It was the peace process of the people in the room and the people of Northern Ireland. And he reiterated that commitment um, on the 25th anniversary in that that really wonderful speech he gave. So I think that's the important thing to emphasize in my mind about American involvement, is it did help sort of force these conversations. It helped to bring a deadline. It helped to sort of organize the discussion and have this third party. Um, But at the end
1: of the day, it was a peace process by the people involved for the people involved. Yeah, I guess I would uh, just w- w- one thing to add on, on a kind of it's it, on on a personal note. In some ways, it's like the just the uh, the idea of and I mean I, I wasn't living in Ireland at the time. I was I was in an Australia and you know pre internet, so you know I wasn't taking a huge amount of notice. But what even made its way you know down to the southern hemisphere at, at that time was the cachet of American involvement. I, I, you cannot overstate that it's hard to even describe it because obviously british involvement was inevitable because you know they're, they're tied up in it but the idea that somebody as high profile and consequential as the president uh, you know and and any of his staff um would would regard and give time and effort and and sort of um uh, focus to this really very kind of regional problem I I don't have the words to describe how how significant that was yeah. so you know if, talking about the the style and the substance it's like sometimes the style is the substance and yeah. and I think that really was 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 the case in in this regard I wonder John if we could just sort of go Back a bit in time, um, just to begin with, before we get to the kind of very interesting kind of on the ground issues. But I wonder, uh, kind of broadly speaking, and as somebody who's, you know, who's written and and, and thought a lot about Bill Clinton's foreign policy, I'm always really curious with regard to how kind of scholarship deals with clinton's foreign policy because he, he gets a hard time doesn't he i think yeah. he gets it from the left he gets it from the right there's no He's good right. place for clinton to be and w- what are your thoughts in terms of you know he didn't have to do this and yeah. you know you, i think i think i might even have been at uh your your echo center talk back in 2005 i think i think i was actually in the room but i i, I recall the <laughs> The text, you you made a mention of what one of the criticisms about Clinton's foreign policy, that it was deemed to be akin to channel surfing, which did make me laugh. But do you think like that there was there was kind of method and and sort of um, purpose to, to his involvement?
3: Yes, I mean, the received view of Clinton's foreign policy is really quite negative. Henry Kissinger, in fact, called it a series of seemingly unconnected decisions in response to the specific crises. Something which you could probably say about most presidents, for yeah. but I, I think there was a coherence. And the coherence was supplied by the Clinton administration's commitment to globalization, economic globalization particularly, but to some extent non-economic as well. And also to internationalism, we forget perhaps that these were the immediate years after the ending of the Cold War, there was a change in mood. There was a rise of what you might call neo-populist nationalism, Pat Buchanan being the most um, celebrated exponent of it in the United States, with which Clinton was very concerned to, to push backwards. Um, this neo-populist nationalism, of course, was later on to uh, flower in the person of none other than Donald Trump. But Clinton mm-hmm. held the line, really, and kept America on an internationalist path. Um, he, he, In terms of how... Um, Ireland fits into it. I think that there was a strong desire to have an internationalist success in foreign policy. I mean, the, the obvious areas of um, possible activism, number one, the Middle East, you know, Arab-Israeli conflict. How about that? But what why did he give energy to Ireland? Well, I think the simple answer is that Ireland was a bit easier. You know, Ireland is very, very difficult, but it's, it's not, it's not Arab-Israel. And of course, the stakes were much, much less. I mean, yeah. there was no possibility, one hopes anyway, of American troop commitments to Belfast or to Northern Ireland, whereas virtually any other um, sustained attempt to have an internationalist peace promotion policy, most obviously in the former Yugoslavia, would involve the commitment of American troops. So actually the Irish uh, activism was relatively risk-free. Also within the United States, there was virtually nobody opposing it. American opinion was either indifferent or actually very much in favour of it. Whereas if you go somewhere else in the world, I mean, you, you find a much more complex uh, structure of American domestic opinion. So for, for those reasons, the desire to have a an internationalist peace promoting success, which could lead on, hopefully, to some Middle Eastern, uh, I know it didn't, but it, it could, in, in the minds of people in the administration anyway, it could have led on to a, a Middle Eastern settlement. That was very, very important to the administration, I think. I, also
2: wonder, oh, I was just going to say that I also wonder how much of it in terms of, you know, you mentioned this post-Cold War moment, is also this yeah. pre-9-11 moment where there yeah. was the opportunity and sort of the public willingness to engage with violent actors, at least indirectly, right? Obviously, there were commitments that were required from paramilitary groups so that their political arm could be part of this negotiation process. But I think we can all agree that that's sort of just indirect negotiation with terrorism, Um, if we want to be, you know, if we want to use the phrase, right, the phrase, we won't negotiate with terrorists, has gained a lot of cachet. Um, But I think pre 911, there was also much more of a willingness to work with with these types of organizations that
3: can't be discounted. I think there are various other things that also attracted Clinton to some activism in Ireland, he did have a personal interest because Oxford became, you know, no doubt, quite in a possibly simplistic way tend to equate the uh, civil rights movement in the, in the southern states of America with the civil rights movement in um, in Northern Ireland. Um, he also, um, I think, was consciously building on some uh, uh, some precedents. Uh, Jimmy Carter really was the first president to actually state clearly that the United States could and should have a role to promote peace in the North of Ireland. Uh, this was Carter's statement in, in 1977. And actually, what people forget sometimes also is that. The Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985 was very much linked to American pressure under Ronald Reagan, another Irish-American president, of course. And I think Clinton saw himself and did build upon some of those um, those uh, foundations. And also, the last point, in, in terms of um, Clinton's interest in Ireland, I remember that the American economy is very, very strong, particularly as the Clinton administration develops, second term in particular. You've got a real boom in America. Which uh, I think led to Clinton having more confidence about uh, um, intervention, in in some sense anyway, in places like Ireland, and also it made the whole um, issue of a peace dividend more credible. The idea that if that you know if beef peace came to the North of Ireland, there would be an economic payoff in terms of um, some to some extent things like the the international fund for Ireland, but more more importantly, really, in terms of American private business investment, which the Clinton administration. Try to encourage. So I think for all those kinds of reasons, Ireland was a was an attractive place for Clinton to become active. But but I think you shouldn't you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't uh, um, underestimate his own personal commitment, which clearly for someone who's often thought to be very flaky and channel surfing, you know, it was genuine, and then it's genuine today, to be honest. And he deserves great credit for it, I think. <laughs>
2: I think the point about investment, too, is something we're seeing now, like Biden, you know, was not at, which is interesting, maybe we can get into this later. Um, President Biden wasn't at this 25th anniversary celebration, despite being having recently been in Ireland on his clearly very proud to be Irish (laughs) tour of the island. Um, But while he was in Northern Ireland, one of the things he very clearly said was, you know, we'd like to up to triple American investment in this region, but it can only happen if Stormont comes back. Right. So yes. that sort of promise of American investment, we're still seeing the legacy of, you know,
1: 25 years later. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's, the, yeah, the, the, there's a kind of a, a, a tapestry, I, I suppose, to all of this, isn't there? And, and you know, I mean, the, the, the economic element, you know, invariably, in if, if if a place is more affluent, there is less likely to be, you know, kind of civil disobedience and, and political unrest and you know, all, all, all the things that we know. And. Um, I guess just maybe one one more kind of historical question for you, John, before we move move forward to, to to the more kind of contemporary era. Um, it was this. I was thinking about the kind of the you know the the, the kind of labels we might stick on uh, Clinton and 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 his agenda. was he was he being a kind of a what was he in full Woodrow Wilson mode? Would you say is is this him being no. kind of Wilsonian in a, in, a, in a very pragmatic sure. way with the economic Absolutely. kind of
3: you know Absolutely. tag? Pragmatic Wilsonianism, democratic engagement, all those things fit in very well with Ireland. But maybe it's one point which might be made is that it's often presumed in, um, in, in Britain anyway that the reason that American presidents get interested in Ireland is because of the Irish vote, that there's lots of Irish-Americans who, you know, take their signal from uh, American interest in Northern Ireland. But I think, generally speaking, that there's an aspect of that. I think Clinton actually first became um, engaged with Irish American groups uh, in the context of the 1992 um, Democratic Party primaries, particularly in, in New York. So there is a, an element of that. But most um, serious study of this suggests that the idea that there is an Irish vote just doesn't exist. That, you know, that there are, after all, of course, there are something like 44 million Americans who um, describe themselves in some way or another as Irish, which given the fact that the population of the island of Ireland is, but it's about three, four million, closer, is it? You know, much less than the 44 million uh, um, Irish yeah. people apparently living in America. And, and of course also the whole notion that, um, you know, uh, America can, the American public can have an impact on Ireland is, is very old, world, going okay, back to the 19th century. There's a famous good piece in James Joyce's Ulysses where he talks about our greater island beyond the sea, that uh, our, our brothers and sisters from from North America will come and rescue us kind of thing. But the idea that there is this, uh, you know, uh, state of American public opinion, a voting opinion, which, which is going to be activated by American presidential activism doesn't really bear a great deal of analysis. You know, Irish-Americans vote across a range of things, economic issues, social, uh, culture wars, and don't really take their cue from um, American interests in Northern Ireland, which, after all, to many of them is very remote. So I, I wouldn't go yeah. along with the idea that this is kind of seeking American um, Irish American votes.
1: really. Maybe in the past, I suppose uh, th- there might have been more of an argument for that, as in historically you could have made a kind of a back of the envelope guess that your average Irish American would have been a bit more blue collar Democrat in yeah. their in their their thinking yeah. and and their kind of agenda. Yeah. But I mean, I would be but, thinking but not these actually, days because
3: of Irish issues, but because of, 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 like, of their was, own circumstances uh, there. Yeah, yeah.
1: But but these days I think I mean the 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 Irish vote in the United States, such as it can even be classed in any kind of coherent way, yeah. um, it, it has gone more conservative. I yeah. think you know small C and big C. So yeah. so, so there's that. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I don't that that doesn't quite sort of fit, fit the, the 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 remit anymore.
3: Yeah, and Biden's trip to to Ireland, I think you know I mean uh, some of the um, journalistic coverage of it suggested it was connected to his announcements of. Uh, standing for re-election in 2024, I mean there might be some tricks of that, but I think he, he went there because he wanted to go there. Quite honestly,
1: sure. now he was looking quite statesmanlike, I must say, and he was very well received at the Republic. Just around the same time as Donald Trump was not having the best uh, uh, news really? cycle, so, so so there's that. I mean, coincidence perhaps, but a, a fortuitous one if if it was. Yes. Yeah. Um, I wonder w- would we sort of jump forward a bit and maybe Amanda thinking about your your um i mean your the, the title of your book basically kind of sums up perfectly uh, much of what we want to talk about today i wonder you know you talk you talk uh, of a strained piece and you talk of a negative piece um maybe you could just kind of expand on that a little bit and and, and let us know I mean where you're coming from with that in terms of you know it's a kind of an imperfect situation just 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 maybe broaden it out for us that'd be really interesting
2: yeah so um so when I talk of a strained peace I'm very much building on this idea of negative peace that Johan Galtung has given us um in in the study of peace more broadly where we can say that a negative peace is basically just the cessation of formal violence. Um, And so we can say that, you know, that's what we've basically achieved with the Good Friday Agreement is we agreed to or, you know, the the participants agreed to ceasefire, agreed to decommissioning um, as a process and engaged with that process as they did following that important 1998 moment. Um, But what I think has happened in Northern Ireland and the reason I describe it as a strained is because of this constructive ambiguity that we got with the good friday agreement and this idea that it could be all things to all people the idea that you could be irish or british or both um, the idea that the border was functionally invisible all of these factors meant that for a lot of people regardless of what side of this division that they see themselves on they could see themselves as having gained from the peace process they could see these peace dividends coming home to them. And that's really important. But what's happened over um, over particularly, I think, the, the years between the Good Friday Agreement and the Brexit vote, when it happened almost invisibly, and then it's happened, I think it's much more obvious since since Brexit has occurred, is that this has really stretched. It's really had to stretch and strain to encompass all these things that, that everyone wants. And so ultimately, I think we, what we end up with is a low-quality peace. Because in trying to please everyone, no one is happy with the status quo. Everyone wants something more, but they can't agree on what that something more should be or agree on how to achieve it. And so that's, I think, the situation we're in now is many, many people can accept that the piece that we see at the moment isn't perfect. Um, But the question of where do we go from here? How do we continue to develop it without straining the piece so far that it snaps remains the question.
0: I want to put a pin in Brexit because I think I want to come back to that okay. and tensions that's caused, and, and also you know gives a chance to think about the American reaction to the, the, the you know what's been going on as well. Could you, in a sense, I, get, I uh, our listeners can't see us, possibly uh, for them in my case, um, but I guess those of us who are older um, and remember violence, you know, real violence, um, my hometown, I was. On my way into Manchester City Centre in 1996, when the bomb went off, uh, which nobody was killed, but um, on, on that day, but um, caused severe disruption uh, and, and you know significant um, physical damage to buildings. Um, and so, the sense of, I guess, I still tend to see it through that lens and the 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 violence and And I guess it's come back into the spotlight a little bit recently with. Um, Rory Carroll's book, uh, Killing Thatcher in the UK, it's got a different name in the US. I can't remember the title in the US. I can't pretend to have read the book. I've, I've heard a number of interviews with, with with Rory Carroll. And rather than debating that book and, and that bombing in Brighton, I guess I, I don't I wouldn't want to ask my students how many of them have any idea about what happened that day. My my guess is most of them wouldn't know. Um, but. It's certainly interesting to hear. I guess not sceptical. I know you're really not being sceptical. That's not quite the right way of phrasing it. But a more nuanced take, I guess, on on, on, on events. When, in a sense, when did that? When did people begin to realise that the agreement was, yes, it done a profound thing in terms of stopping the violence or reducing the violence, the, the very explicit violence. Uh, and the random nature of that balance, but to a more, to review view that it hadn't fulfilled its full brief, so to speak. When, uh, when sort of in that, in the 25-year period, you think that people began to to reflect that it, it, it as I say hadn't done all it could, if that makes sense?
2: I think people started to be critical about it from the negotiation process, right? You know, I'm reminded of um, Ian Paisley and the DUP walking out of that negotiation process and, ultimately going on to campaign against it in the referendum. So you can find, you probably have seen actually footage of the announcement of the vote and this really wonderful moment of, you know, the success of the Good Friday Agreement referendum, but over 20% of the population voted against it. Um, and so you see the DUP celebrating that at the time. And so I think that might have been the first inclination, the first indication that all was not going to sort of magically be resolved. But I think the first major test came with this point on decommissioning. Um, You know, the public had decided that they could, to a point, stomach the idea of prisoner release, and that was obviously very controversial. But I think this question of decommissioning and the length of time that it took um, to get decommissioning agreed, and the fact that the process had to be revisited at St. Andrews in 2006, all of these things sort of reiterated that peace was going to be a process. It was going to be something that had to be tended, that had to be sort of cared for, had to be looked after and had to be revised as situations changed. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Um, You know, you talk about, you know, your own memories of violence and I mean, just about everyone in Northern Ireland who lived through the troubles has, has their own memories or knows, knows people who do. Um, But I think what's been interesting to see in recent years with sort of new new waves of dissident paramilitary violence especially is the young age of a lot of people that have been arrested for participation in these groups and the fact that a lot of those people won't have their own memories of the troubles and so are maybe more keen or more willing maybe keen isn't the right word but more willing to participate in violence because they don't remember how bad things really could be and they don't have that sort of stake in the idea that an imperfect peace is better than no peace at all.
0: John, and I, 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 I know I'm going to annoy people by sort of um, sort of banning the US square peg into round holes um, here, but just in terms of the the, the ongoing process, I mean, because of course Clinton was only in office for another yeah eighteen. Well, well, to the end of two thousand. Did do you think that was there any input from the US in terms during the Bush administration post two thousand in terms of trying to make it work, or did they just sort of
3: yeah, take up a second. Maybe one simple point worth making is that the Good Friday Agreement obviously had a massive impact upon conditions of violence in the North of Ireland, but it also really ended the, a lot of the, the spillover onto the mainland. I mean, as, as Alex was saying, I mean the 1996 bombing, the Warrington bombing; these were things that people of our age remember very, very clearly, and that really has disappeared, and that's a dramatic change in terms of continuing American involvement. Uh, yes, I mean. Um, the, you, there is a position called the Special Envoy to Northern Ireland, which uh, you know, has continued until the present. The current one is actually Joe Kennedy III. I think he was the president of Robert <laughs> Kennedy, I think. Um, and you have people like Gary Hart who was actually a Special Envoy to uh, Northern Ireland under Obama. And Mike Muldani, who was a, a former uh, Chief of Staff under Trump. I mean, what, what on earth he did to Northern Ireland, I have no idea. But there's certainly, this, this office of the Special Envoy has continued. Um, a lot of their responsibilities, I guess, are economic, trying to you know, beat the drum for American investment. But certainly under George W. Bush, I mean, there is a literature on this, uh, George W. Bush had two special envoys, Richard Haas, later on president of the Council of Foreign Relations, and a guy called Mitchell Rice, who, who apparently um, is it's slightly murky, but were involved in ongoing dialogues about decommissioning prisoner releases. Uh, often at odds actually with London and tending quite often to side with Dublin. So um, although it's been far less um, high profile than it was under Clinton, American institutionalised involvement in Northern Ireland has continued. Um, what Joe Kennedy III does, I couldn't tell you, but you know he is there anyway. <laughs> so true. the answer is yes, it has continued. Yes. Yeah, it has. Okay, that's interesting. Thanks.
0: Um, I, I, well, I, um, I guess we'll just to jump forward a little bit to to Brexit and and, and the, the manner in which that has changed things. Um, and I I should be very clear. I am the I am the I am the person who's the least about this subject today. Um, but but to, 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 I guess I was going to say to the outside eye, but to my sort of eye, Brexit has exacerbated the tensions. And that is that is that just an obvious truth or. or Yes, Amanda's nodding, so do you want to be on that?
2: Yeah, I think that, as I said, you know, one of the uh, maybe unstated but really important contributions of um, the Good Friday Agreement was this constructive ambiguity. The fact that depending on your own perspective, you could see benefits for your own community in this. It allowed, particularly, I think most... Maybe most obviously, it allowed people um, to hold only an Irish passport and the open border, which had obviously been the border having been such a a point of confrontation during the Troubles, the open border meant that people could live a whole island life if that's what they wanted to do. Um, And so I think that's yeah a really easy way to see the initial immediate impact of Brexit is the fact that. Suddenly the question became, do we need border checks? What does that look like? Um, you know, it no longer was completely um, easy to hold only even a British passport because suddenly holding only a British passport meant you've lost access to the rest of the EU. So, you know, you had an absolute run on Irish passport applications in Belfast, which was um, sort of interesting to see in the days immediately following the vote. But I think that ultimately to sort of answer to get back to answering your question is that, you know, it absolutely just stressed the fact that issues in Northern Ireland hadn't been resolved um in the sense that there were a number of differences a number of difficulties that still needed to be sorted out and we've seen that play out since brexit right we've seen that play out with the continued debates over issues of trade right we had the backstop and the northern ireland protocol and now we've got the windsor framework and all of these things are still being worked out none are perfect um and so we're still seeing as i said earlier you know stormont's not sitting at the moment because of all of it um so, yeah, Brexit has absolutely sort of drawn all of that back up in a way that I don't think anyone could have expected
0: in 1998. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Do you, I mean, could, this is, it. I'm, I'm going to take, throw back a very general question at you now, right? an impossible to answer question really, but could this have played out differently? I mean, I guess, again, I'm sorry to, maybe say things which are stupidly simplistic i mean one of the things that always strikes me is is the the, the in, you know some of the central characters and clearly there were lots of characters involved but you know the david trimble and in terms of the sdlp and the, he was sort of key to bringing you know the, the nationalist and the unionist side together. and so they've been politically squeezed now you know in the sense of um could that ever played out differently Was In a sense, was that one of the inevitability, the ironies of politics? Um,
2: I think it's it's ultimately a bit of the irony of politics. There's a phrase I really like on consociationalism, which is the mandated power sharing that was put in place in Northern Ireland um, following the Good Friday Agreement. So the phrase I've always liked, it comes from, from Frank Wright's writing. He says that consociationalism only works when it isn't strictly necessary which basically he means that, you know, we can only mandate power sharing when you don't have to tell people they have to share. Um, And he goes on to say that, you know, the ultimate the reason for this is because what you see is because politicians are really only competing for votes from one pool, right? From one half of um, one half of the population or one demographic, one community in the population, they in turn are sort of pulled further out sort of middle ground is eroded as people are pulled further out. And we see that now. We see that with um, the SDLP and the UUP having gone from being the major powers behind the Good Friday Agreement to having very little political power in Northern Ireland at the moment, whereas we've seen the rise of Sinn Féin, we've seen the rise of the DUP. And so I think that consociationalism and mandated, you know, this mandated power sharing was very much the right choice in Northern Ireland at the time for getting Getting everyone into a room, getting that power sharing system set up. Um, But I think one of the sort of cruel ironies of it is that we've seen it play out the way it has. Um, But I don't think that's a feature of Northern Ireland. I think um, I agree with Frank Wright that it's very much a feature of the political system as it's set up.
0: Do you want to just, that's fascinating. Just for those who aren't sure, can you give us a quick quick briefing on consociationalism and the power sharing agreement? And in a way, quickly, why Stormont doesn't? i say it doesn't work, but why it's failed to sit for so much of its so much of the last 25 years.
2: Yeah, so consociationalism, so this idea of mandated power sharing has like a much longer history than just, um, just it being in Northern Ireland. But the way it's been set up in Northern Ireland is to ensure that nationalists and unionists have to work together on issues so that you can see that in the way that um, the executive is set up. So you have a, a first minister who's the leader of the largest party on on one side or the other um, and a deputy first minister who's the leader of um, the largest party on the other side and this is one of the reasons Stormont isn't sitting at the moment was because at the last election for the first time ever um, a unionist wasn't going to be first minister um, Sinn Féin was returned as the largest party and so they were going to sit um, as first minister so this is one of the reasons Stormont isn't up and running at the moment and so on most things um Stormont works with um you know you need a majority to pass a law you need a majority to pass a bill right the same way we see these sorts of systems work anywhere uh, but one thing that um the good friday agreement and its subsequent legislation ensured was um something called the principle of consent which is the idea that um if one community sees legislation coming through that's going to be particularly impactful on them they can call for Um, they can call for a vote that requires that a majority on both sides support it. So we've gone past just a majority and needing a majority on both sides of of the setup. Um, This has been really politicized in recent years. This is one of the concerns about this new Stormont veto that's going to come in with the Windsor framework. Um, But in theory, it's supposed to ensure that you can't have one group sort of overpowering the
1: other. Okay, that's great. I wonder. Um, just thinking. Just w- w- one more question about kind of where things have been, and maybe we'll start thinking about uh, like what what what's to come. Perhaps. Um, just mindful of, of of the time. Maybe just Amanda, you you've written um, or you've kind of talked about you've used the term culture wars in in relation to this situation, and I know you don't mean as necessarily exactly in in the way that we might understand it in an American context, but in some ways there there's kind of I guess there is some overlap, isn't there? You know, like whether it's kind of identity issues or values issues or whatever, they, it's, it's kind of come, come to roost in Northern Ireland. Would you may, may, maybe just tell us a bit about what you mean by that in relation to Northern Ireland?
2: Yeah, so one thing I think that's happened since paramilitary guns have largely gone silent is that other things have very much sort of filled the gap of being a marker of identity and belonging and community and all these sorts of things. Um, and so you've had violent actors in particular, or um, maybe not necessarily violent actors, but we can maybe say sort of bad faith actors, right? Individuals who are sort of looking to divide, looking to sort of shore up their own position, trying to latch on to specific issues and paint them as sort of key div- divider dividing points. And I think, um, you know, the way that we can see this playing out, I think, is particularly in cultural celebrations. So, for example, the um, bonfires that get lit on the 11th of July every year um, in um, unionist Protestant communities have very much been taken over in recent years by loyalists, um, paramilitaries in some cases. So, um, you know, some of these are just sort of natural community competitions of who has the biggest bonfire. But in other cases, you're seeing nationalist politicians, campaign posters being burned. You're seeing, you um, Signs that say KAI for kill all Irish um, being burned, you're seeing Irish tricolors being burned, all of these sorts of things. So clearly setting out to claim power, claim territory, and mark out the sort of us and them. So not quite a culture war in the way we're seeing play out in the United States, but sort of moving in that direction a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. No, that's yeah, it's interesting and a little bit depressing as well. I think in 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 equal measure. I, I wonder, John, if if we if we sort of think about what, what next? You know, there's been a lot of reflections in 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 recent weeks about you know the, the what's gone on the past twenty five years and 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 the kind of you know stunted um, development and peaks and troughs, et cetera. What about what about the next twenty five years? How how might you see the US being involved? Or or is that no longer relevant? Have things changed kind of too much? What would your thoughts be
3: there? It's difficult to to see much uh, prospect of, of, you know, substantive American involvement, uh, you know, absent a a kind of complete breakdown of law and order in the North of Ireland, which we sincerely hope doesn't happen. Uh, Maybe I can just make two points. Maybe one is that, again, to state the obvious, the Good Friday Agreement was a fantastic success in terms of diminishing violence, both in Northern Ireland and on the mainland. Uh, but of course, Northern Ireland remains a very, very uh, divided uh, place and, and social separation, polarisation, as we've been saying, just really, has, probably anything, it you know, even got worse than it, than, it, than it was. And that needs to be addressed. It can't be addressed by America. It has to be addressed by, frankly, the, the government of in, in, in the UK, to be honest. The, the, the second point, thinking about future American involvement, is to do with credibility. I mean, um, uh, the tens, it was a big problem for Clinton, the assumption that any sort of American activist diplomatic engagement would, broadly speaking, be on the nationalist side. That that was a big, big problem. Clinton overcame that, actually. I think one way he did that was simply being a, a southern Protestant, actually, he, helped him in, in that respect. And he deliberately, Al Gore as well, reached out to James Molyneux and to some of the, what they saw as a less extreme um, unionist people. They tended to want to, um, shove Paisley aside, but to reach out to Trimble and, and to Molyneux in particular. And any future um, activism in Washington will have to confront that as well, the assumption that what they're doing essentially is to weigh in on the nationalist side. Um, Clinton just about got around that, but it's, it's, still, it's still a big problem. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I think the prospects, well, I, I suppose you could say that, as I was trying to say earlier, that American involvement has been institutionalised in the State Department through a special envoy. Uh, office. So the the, the the nuts and bolts are there, but the the, the opportunity um, depends perhaps on something rather dramatic happen, happening in in the north of Ireland, which I sincerely hope doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, no, you could see. I mean just in terms of the assumption that American involvement will take the nationalist side in some of the British some elements of the British press reporting of Biden's yes, visit, which was... Yes, yes, yes. Very, well, and, and some of the blowhards, I guess, without giving too much of my politics, away well, hey, I'm the Tory right, who, who were, you know, depicting, you know, Biden hates the UK. And, yes, yes. Which is, you know, quite absurd, but it, it's interesting. Yeah. In terms of, so, and, and, you know, the, 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 the British spin is... I think the lens is very much that the, the Americans approach this from a from a nationalist side. Um, uh, uh, John, I I I shall come back to you in a moment about this question about polarisation within Northern Ireland at the moment and and the problems and divisions that cause. So I'm just sticking on the theme of of the US for a moment, because one of the things which (coughs) uh, was... You know, one of the post-Brexit, you know, one of the, the, the promises of the Brexiteers was that, you know, we'd have all these great free trade agreements uh, around the world. The, we, sorry, the UK would have all these. I hate people doing that, actually. So <laughs> uh, the UK would have all these great free trade agreements around the world. Um, uh, but there was, you know, I, I guess those who were more sceptical about Brexit would, in terms of a, an agreement with the, with the US, would be that any trade agreement would need, doesn't need congressional approval. I mean, that's a, yeah, 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 an issue, an issue in US politics. And, and there was also this isn't going to happen if it threatens the stability of the Good Friday Agreement. Is, is that a real? Is that something in
3: terms of internal US politics? Is that a real issue? Do you think? For,
0: you- yes, indeed it is. I
3: mean, uh, as as we all know, I mean, um, the whole dynamic of Brexit uh, after the referendum, uh, I'm thinking was Boris Johnson, it did continue without any real um, reference to, to the Ireland. You know, after all After an integral part of the British state, you know, and, and just just plough ahead regardless of the very severe consequences for um, for the Good Friday Agreement was extraordinarily irresponsible. On. On part of Boris Johnson and his administration. Um, so again, I suppose another obvious point is that, that the, the international context of the Good Friday Agreement involved um, the European Union uh, as well as the United States, and um, that dimension, of course, is still there to some extent, but but it's, but it's utterly altered as to as, as to um, you know, really um, create um, huge problems in terms of a, mari- a British trade agreement with the United States. I mean, no, it just, you know, not not in my time, I don't think. And and all kinds of foolish and false promises were, were, were set out during that uh, Johnson period.
0: Yeah. And Amanda, did you see the Windsor Framework Agreement coming? Was I mean, I, I, you know, I think was that something because there, there there weren't many predictions of success uh, during those negotiations. Were you surprised by that?
2: I was actually I knew it was a priority because it sort of it has to be right. It has to be um, a priority to getting this sorted out just because, you know, the the ways that people were talking about the backstop and then the protocol and all of its really negative impacts on Northern Ireland um, made it make sense that Rishi Sinek wanted to prioritize, that sort of thing. Um, but I was surprised that they were able to achieve the Windsor framework. And when it was first announced and fir- I first read it, I was actually really positive about it. I thought it seemed like a really great opportunity for Northern Ireland. Um, obviously, we've since seen quite a lot of, shall we say, skepticism on the part of various political parties in Northern Ireland about it. And this has obviously been met with Rishi Sunak. Basically saying that while well, the government can get it through uh, without that support, right? The DUP are no longer kingmakers, as it were, in uh, Westminster. Um, so I was surprised that it was agreed, and I am cautiously optimistic about its implementation. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes.
1: I like cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I think I think that's all one could ever be in relation to <laughs> this topic. But it's, it seems like a, a reasonably positive note to draw things to 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 a close on. Uh, John, any 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 closing statement there? Any any thoughts or uh,
3: optimism? Uh, uh, oh, absolutely, optimism. Absolutely. I, I don't know if you want recommending a reading of books. That would be wonderful. That that was our our or oh, reading sorry, viewing
1: like... any anything relevant well, to this it's... that you think might
3: be. There is quite an in- interesting book called Shenanigans by Trina Varga, who was who worked. Who worked sorry, that's my dog Bug, <laughs> who, um, who worked for Ted Kennedy uh, about tech, Ted Kennedy's involvement in the Friday, Friday Agreement? It's actually very, it's actually very, very critical. Anyway, I, I'll um, I'll uh, let my dog take over. <laughs> uh, there's also a very good um, uh, account of the. Um, the whole peace process by Eamon O'Kane called the Northern Ireland Peace Process, which is detailed and very reliable. And maybe I just lastly recommend Fintan O'Toole, We Don't Know Ourselves. For anybody in England who wants to get some handle over Irish issues, particularly some Irish issues, that's a book I recommend absolutely, totally. We Don't Know Ourselves by Fintan O'Toole. Yeah,
0: Yeah.
3: I second that.
1: It's fantastic. Yeah, 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 it really really is. is.
0: Just quickly, folks. Those of you know me will know there's no chance I'm going to edit the dog out. If I tried to all open at the start, so. Um, Amanda, have you got any? Questions? No. I just and I do want to I, I step on Clarence toes a little bit, but just quickly. I, I, yes, it's nice to be in an optimism, but the, the, go back to that issue of polarization. How you know c- can that be overcome, or are we just is, is, is division to just for you know for the foreseeable future in terms of social life, at least in Northern Ireland. I think it absolutely can be overcome. Um,
2: and I think one of the ways to do that, though, is being really conscious of it and doing it really deliberately. And so you have both political and social organizations that are very much set up to sort of stand apart from the constitutional question. So that could be from the Alliance Party, so the political party who are officially neutral on the constitutional question, who have gained quite a lot of support in recent years, but also, you know, issues around everything from integrated education for children to social clubs for adults, right, all of these sorts of things. So I think it can absolutely be overcome with, you know, care and attention. I don't think it will happen overnight, and I don't think it will happen by accident. Um, but I think it absolutely yeah. can be if, if people commit themselves to it, and we've seen people commit themselves to these sorts of processes before, so it's absolutely possible. Yeah. yeah.
1: And a recommendation, yeah. Amanda? Any any viewing or reading that you think might be? Um,
2: yeah. So.
1: So Alex actually
2: already mentioned um, Roy Carroll's book, Killing Thatcher. I've actually got it here. It's Uh very good. Um, So I'd recommend that. But more recently, there have been two limited-run podcasts that I think have been really great. So you've got As I Remember It, which is Bertie Ahern looking back on the Good Friday Agreement. So it's his recollections. He's done a series of interviews with um, with people ranging from, you know, he did interview Senator Mitchell, he's had interviews from the Women's Coalition, these sorts of things. So I'd really recommend that for looking back on this 25th anniversary legacy, but also lost in implementation with Emma D'Souza has been very good um, in looking forward and looking at the issues that, you know, some of the things we've talked about today um around issues that still are there or that have maybe come up in the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. So those would be the two podcasts I'd recommend sort of on one looking back, one looking forward.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much. And just uh, in in my prep for this, I, one of the things I was looking at was um, it was on Channel 4, um, the the Lyra McKee documentary. Absolutely fantastic. Really sad, but it's it's so insightful and such a great reminder of why, you know, the ball needs to not be dropped on this because you know just going back is it would just be too depressing to think about so yeah i totally recommend that alex final sentence we better stop talking but any
0: no just to say uh thanks to amanda and john uh for being such great guests and really helping us understand helping me understand and helping hopefully our okay. listeners understand uh some of the extraordinary complexities of this and i know we've only scratched the surface and that's the, all you can do in a 45 minute conversation um but, um go away and read stuff by uh, amanda and John uh that's the books we'd recommend um uh because, absolutely yeah uh thanks thanks ever so much thank you both so much
1: wonderful to hear thank from you. you okay thank, thank you.